Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Nobuko Yamasaki. She is Associate Professor of Japanese and of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Lehigh University. Today, we will be discussing her newly published book, Prostitutes, Hostesses, and Actresses at the Edge of the Japanese Empire, Fragmenting History, published in New York by Routledge, 2021. Nobuko, it is an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you so much, Ari, for having me today at this very difficult time, you know, to talk about war and all these issues. (laughs) So I feel so honored to be invited. Thank you for having me. Thank you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? Um, Actually, this is an ongoing issue, you know, at the time we are living right now. So where shall I start? I was born in Japan and grew up in Japan most of my life. But in the meantime, um, I had an opportunity to stay in Australia, live in Australia and study for a year. And also I lived in, um, just stayed, studied in Russia for a few months, several times. Um, But mostly I grew up in Japan. And the formative events. Um, so growing up, I always felt I was living in a certain historical ambience. And I was constantly thinking, um, we have to historicize this present moment in order to understand what's going on. Because each emotion has a history. So I was constantly thinking about historicizing the emotions that we face today. The reason why is um, this is a very sad story to share. Um, Under the Japanese empire, um, there was a censorship, which my book deals with. And then two of my family members were a victim of that. Um, So one is my mother's side of family, Ishitate Kotoe. He was a Marxist thinker an activist leader, and he was put into prison and then killed and died. Um, under the Chiang Ijiho, notorious Chiang Ijiho, it is translated as peace preservation law, but what was really happening was basically they were, um, the, the law was banning the socialist um, thinking or more anti-capitalist thinking mode of thought. <laughs> And then they were arresting the thinkers and philosophers. And so unfortunately, you know, my family has that kind of family member. And on the other hand, also my father's side has um, that kind of individual as well. His name is Okunomiya Kenshi. And Okunomiya is my father's side of last name. Um, so he was uh, also a philosopher, a thinker. He was more like a liberal socialist thinker. And um, he was also arrested um, in Taigaku Jiken and then died and murdered in prison, along with other philosophers such as Kotoku Shusui. So this is now, um, how do you say, really silenced part of history. The reason why you know they were arrested was really random. 
but um but basically they were what they were they were considered to be a menace menace for the Japanese Empire because they were critiquing the Japanese Empire so I grew up in such ambience it's not but it's not that you know my family members are constantly talking about them rather these memories um showed up as fragment like incoherent manner time to time but that was the um ambience I grew up and also um my grandfather I was very close with um um he was a trained law well, he went to uh, Tokyo Imperial, current Tokyo University, but at that time he was called Tokyo Imperial University, and he was trained by Minobe Tatsukichi. Minobe Tatsukichi was also kind of basically known for Tenno Kikansetsu, um, lost his position, um, being critiqued for critiquing the national polity, Koktai, insulting the national polity, national essence. So my f- grandfather witnessed it, the violence exercised by the Japanese Empire. And at the same time, when he was in high school, um, he formed a book club reading group. And he was also censored by the police. And he was taken by the police when he was in high school. And then so he had a buddy to form the reading group book club. And his buddy he went, his body went to, his friend went to current Kyoto University, at that time Kyoto Imperial University, and he got involved into so-called Takigawa Jiken, and he was arrested and killed in prison. So um, I grew up in such ambience, and of course, so I was interested in silenced part of history. And um, so these are the events, some events <laughs> that formed me who I am to do the research, what I do. So I always interested in the history, silenced path that's fall away from the official historiography. And I was I was interested in how to read silence, how to read margins. And, and I found um, it is very useful to study like trauma theories and affect theories to read those. So these are um, the experiences I had to form who I am. And also oh, recently, as a recent event, my daughter now um, goes to a college and she found uh, a whole collection written by Okunomiya Kenshi, a liberal thinker, um, at the library she goes to. It's a Cornell University's library, East Asian collections they have. And she sent me a screenshot to me and said, Mom, read this. And he was about how Okonomiya Kenshi was critiquing the Japanese empire at that time. And I got it. Okay, yeah, he was a dangerous figure against the empire. That's a very recent um, event took place. So it's ongoing. And also in the current ongoing wars on this globe uh, makes me rethink and think who I am as a scholar too. But thank you for asking such a big, important question. How is this book structured? Oh, that's an important question, too. So the book titled Prostitute Hostesses and Actresses at the Edge of the Japanese Empire, Fragmenting History. So this already indicates I'm not reading the, um, I'm challenging the grand narratives written by men in power. And I'm challenging the historiography that is shown like a year, an event, an year, an event, in an year, an event. And always there is a question, who wrote this? Who created all this historiography? So my book starts from the intervention into such historical discourses, such large narratives. And then so the chapter one starts with um, Nakajima Atsushi. So the reason why I brought in Nakajima Atsushi at the beginning is, um, as it's indicated uh, in italics, you know, little subtitles, all these small themes um, keep coming up in different forms throughout the book, um, such as um, intervening in empire, the other as individual, or the hierarchy is disrupted, 
or a linguistic failure and a self-consciousness of a child, a prostitute protest, self uh, justice's self-contradictions in which I um, critiqued, uh, critiqued about the justice, what the justice is, that, uh, trying to foreground its contingency. And also finally, eloquent silences, like all these themes keep coming up throughout the text. So I place this um, in the first chapter. And also, you know, this uh, Nakajima Atsushi, let the prostitute speak the silenced part of history by using his um, rhetorical devices. I can talk about this more in detail later. And also kind of... Um, this project you know, turned out to be more personal than I imagined. And uh, the Nakajima Atsushi himself, um, he was born in Japan, but he grew up in uh, the colonial Korea when Japan occupied Korean Peninsula. So um, although as an elite, he ended up working for the empire, the Japanese empire, and he was creating the Japanese language textbook, by the order of the Japanese Empire for the natives in South Seas who didn't know how to read and write, who are deemed as illiterate by the Japanese Empire. Um, but he was constantly questioning the mission he was assigned by the Japanese Empire. And I was trying to think why he was so critical. And, and I noticed um, in his upbringing, growing up in the occupied Korea and his his work the his first work really reveals um such problems how Koreans are living in everyday lives how their everyday lives are permeated through and through by asymmet asymmetrical power dynamics between Japanese and Koreans between men and women um so by revealing Nakajima was critiquing the Japanese empire. And what I notice is um, Nakajima Atsushi, you know, he is considered to be the, like a safe writer. She was, he was always employed by the Japanese language textbook, even today throughout. Um, so there are uh, second or third or fourth generations of Nakajima Atsushi reader because he's employed as a Japanese textbook. However, and also I'm trying to challenge that can, kind of canonical reading as well. And I presented a claim that in order to understand Nakajima Atsushi, you need to reread the canon through the lens of his colonial works. And the colonial work is the one I closely analyzed in my um in my book and then this so it's not that what i'm trying to claim is it's not that um nakajima atsushi so what i'm trying to claim is it's not that th there are genres within nakajima atsushi colonial works or canonical works it's not that what i'm trying to say is you need to reread the canon in light of in light of his colonial works, what is considered to be minor works, because he's writing, I know he's writing about the same thing from the beginning till the end. So this is a small example. Um, so like his like rhetoric, word choice, such as he brings in like a he brings in dialectics in his writings so he brings in the ideas and word choice and characters <clears throat> that are <clears throat> that appear opposing element but combine and shows the dynamics he does it and also he constantly writing about a figure that character that serves for the government but um he questions his own work and he does it from his early work till the end. So what does it mean? I was trying to answer. Um, so the structure is so Nakajima Atsushi's ethos lingers through, throughout the text. That's why it came in the first chapter. And the second chapter is about, uh, it's, oh, 
that Ikora, she's a very complex woman. It's hard, in, in a sense, she's very hard to pin down. She lived in contradictions, lived in reality and fabric, fabrications. And then, so she was a propaganda actress for the Japanese empire. In many films, what she played was um, a Chinese girl. At first, she held anti-Chinese sentiment, but she falls in love with a benevolent Japanese man. And then she transforms into a Chinese girl, Chinese woman, who support the building of expansion of the Japanese empire. Very dangerous. Um, but later on, she really regrets what she did. And she tried to, um, so later in her life, she became politician. And then she founded the uh, grant foundation to support um, women who was a victim of the sexual violence. And then so they try to save, um, help the former comfort women that served for the Japanese empire. But at the same time, you know, there was an opposing voice raised from the former colonial subject. Like we can't accept money from Rikora. You know, she was a propaganda actress. Um, so I was trying to write about her contradictory life and the uh, possible ethical moment that might be emerging within herself, even though she appears very naive. And chapter um three, and uh, in chapter three. Oh, and also what, what, what is important is Rikoran was born in so-called Manchukuo, the northeast of northeast China. So it was also um under Japanese Empire. Japanese Empire created a puppet regime. So she was completely fluent in Chinese and Japanese. That's why she was able to perform such actress. Um she was able to perform Chinese girls in her films. And she was lying in public that she was Chinese, even though she was Japanese. Um, and I can talk about it later too. So actually this was later on, she was actually detained right after, she was detained. It was Nanking, not in prison itself, um, right after the World War II, because she was um, considered to be a Chinese that worked for the Japanese empire. That was a crime. So, and her Chinese was that great. Great means that she was that fluent. You know, even the authorities, you know, be, get confused that whether she was uh, thinking she was Chinese. And, but in the end, um, her life was saved by her childhood best friend. She was a Jewish girl. I'm sorry, she was a Jewish girl. Because you know, there are a lot of um Jewish people living in the Manch uh, Manchukuo because they escaped from pogrom. So kind so one of her best friends was such Jewish girl, and she was the one that obtained the Koseki family registry, revealing she is Japanese, not Chinese. And then she saved her life, Rikoran's life. So, and so in Hayashi Kyoko, in a chapter three, um, so she's known as an A-bomb writer and atomic bomb writer because she was born in Nagasaki. But right after she was born, her family moved to Shanghai. So she grew up in Shanghai. So she was also fluent in Chinese. Too. There are so many... Um, uh, Basically, you know, the all the writers and creators I I dealt with in my book, they are multilinguals. So Hayashi Kyoko grew up in Shanghai. And so I was trying to foreground, because she is analyzed a lot as an A-bomb survivor writer. So I was trying to foreground her criticism against the Japanese nationalism, against the Japanese nation state. That lies at the heart of her work. That's through her interactions with a prostitute. That's what I was trying to do in chapter three. And then in chapter four, uh, four and five, um, 
These are about the diasporic Korean women, Yanji and Teresa Hakyoncha. So, you know, they didn't know each other and their life are completely different. But as a diasporic Korean women, they share the same concerns for Koreans. And they are both born in um, 1950s and they both died suddenly at, in their 30s. And it's so interesting, even though they didn't know each other, they share the same concerns for Koreans because they are living, still living the legacies of the colonialism, you know, Japan, colonized by the Japanese. And then so in their works, even so in analyzing them, the affect theories really useful um, to handle the generational trauma they are tackling with. So that's how my, so I was trying to put these diasporic Korean women into dialogue. So, so this is how my book is structured. Yeah, structured. Thank you for asking good question. What message do you hope to convey to readers in this book? Well, that's a great question. There are so many messages, but if I come up with one, what I want to say is I want to propose uh, we need to embrace art, any art form that makes us uncomfortable. Because I think the art, good art, it can be literature, poetry, film, um, I, they, it kind of creates rapture in the present moment. And then it kind of makes us stop in the present moment. And then it, it let us think, reflect the present moment and start to think about past in a creative manner, critical manner. And then from there, we start to think about creative future, better future. So I was, you know, as, as, as you can tell, um, all the works I dealt with are not comfortable works. It makes us really uncomfortable, especially make Japanese uncomfortable. But I was trying to dig into it because I want to think about better futures in a creative manner. And, and also the messages I want to convey is um, I want leaders. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Um, I, I, um, I was trying to show how to read silence or silenced voices or marginalized voices that fall away from official historiography. And that's what I did throughout the chapter. And I want my audiences to notice how I did it. How does your research advance our understanding of the experiences of sex workers in World War II? Thank you for asking for great questions. That's really core part of my work. Um, the reason why I paid attention to sex workers is, you know, their histories are not really narrated, but they were definitely there and they played crucial roles under the Japanese empire. And each chapter talk talks about the role of sex workers, but they are very different. So let me talk each chapter. So in Nakajimatsu's chapter, uh, Nakajimatsu foreground the Korean prostitute. So as I mentioned earlier a little bit, you know, Nakajimatsu was writing under censorship. And then, so this, and uh, Nakajimatsu cunningly said, astutely said this work um, during the time of the Great Kanto earthquake took place. And what happened after the Great Kanto earthquake was there was a rumor that Koreans are trying to revolt against Japanese and they were trying to kill Japanese by poisoning drinking water. So what happened was a Korean massacre and genocide, but it was prohibited. It was banned to speak about it and that the, but the people knew it. 
So Nakajima, she knew it. So she let the Korean prostitute to speak about it. Um, so Nakajima Shindas is taking a risk in writing about this piece, um, so negotiating with the censorship and power, but she doesn't let the prostitute say it so clearly, but implicitly, but explicitly stated it. Like um, this is how it done. So so Korean, this Korean prostitute believe her husband is working in Japan. And he died um, during the Kanto earthquake. But one of his clients says, what? So you didn't know what really happened to Koreans after the great Kanto earthquake? And then there is a silence and dots and dashes. And then Nakajima delineate how she responded to one of her client message. So she cannot write many Koreans are massacred in the genocide. But and if you know how power dynamics taking place, you can quickly get it. Now we know there was the genocide took place. So like, so you know the Korean prostitute became so, um, how do you say, gone crazy, um, started to act like a lunatic and screaming around, and saying what happened to Koreans after the massacre, and then because of the act. The prostitute was arrested, arrested by other Koreans, ironically, because the policeman was working for the Japanese Empire. What is what was considered to be justice at that time was to work for the Japanese Empire. So in doing so, I was also trying to reveal the contingency of the justice system by the Korean prostitute, um, Nanda Omaeda to Omaeda to and Korean Chosenjin no Kseni. So she uses the term Chosenjin no Kseni. Kseni is, means that's a despite being of Korean, but at the same time, this rhetoric um, is used when somebody acts in a way that counters the shared value. So it's a, the implication is a blame. So Korean prostitute blames the Korean policeman that arrested her. So that's um, so Nakajima she uses employees uses um, they delineates this Korean prostitute to reveal the violence of the Japanese Empire exercised against Koreans at that time genocide. And the next chapter uh, was uh, so yes um Arikoran. So Rikoran, so in this particular chapter, I didn't talk much about prostitute, rather I did it um, in appendix, because I translated Rikoran's um, speech, uh, not the speech, the statement, when she established um, a fund to support former comfort women and like how her act was opposed by former comfort women. And she was really critiqued because she was a propaganda actress. Um, so it, it's very easy to critique her as being so naive. But like she was trying to do what she could do in a position she was assigned. So, um, and she really lived a life of contradictions she really cried. She apologized so many times. So um, you say she. So after the World War Two, she accepted a responsibility assigned on to her and tried to work for people those who those whose life were violated by the Japanese Empire. But I also agree to some degree she was a little naive. And in the next chapter. It's Hayashi Kyoko. So um, Hayashi Kyoko, um, you know, as I said, you know, she grew up in the um, Japanese settlement in Shanghai. And then so in this chapter, I was trying to foreclose, uh, not the foreclose, foreground a prostitute figure called Okiyo-san. She was a Japanese prostitute serving for anyone living in Shanghai, regardless of race, 
class, gender. And at that time, you know, there were, you know, Hayashi Kyoko doesn't clearly state it, but she write about uh, the Japanese hostesses that are also serving sex for the Japanese um, client um, under the guise of ryote restaurant and serving for the Japanese armies and Japanese navies at that time. But the Okiyo-san was, but they were kind of protect the Japanese hostesses. They were protected in a way under the Japanese empire, by the Japanese empire. However, Okiyo-san was not even in the system. She was living with other uh, Russian prostitutes in Shanghai and serving for um, even Chinese um, coolies that were despised at that time. And so Okiyo-san's body was uh, violating both racial, national, class boundaries at that time. So she was another within. She was unwanted other within. So she was really despised by the Japanese community in Shanghai. But um, Okiyo-san was a, a, a real figure. Hayashi Kyoko developed friendship and then, so she is a figure that falls away from the ethos of the Japanese Empire, and she was not worth. Uh, she was not worthy um, to represent the ethos of the Japanese Empire, because at that time there was a term, a notion called ryōsai kenbo. Uh, that's the way women should live. Ryōsai means um, good wives. Kembo means wise mothers. Good wives, wise, wise mothers was the ideal way to live Japanese women's life. Okiyo-san didn't fit. And Hayashi Kyoko's mother fit. Um, so Hayashi Kyoko didn't really listen to what her mother was teaching and then kind of rebelled. Um, and so Hayashi, uh, so the so that leads to, so the interactions with um, the prostitute, Okiyo-san, leads to, uh, really reveals the Hayashi Kyoko's criticism against the nation state, violence conducted by the nation state, because Okiyo-san is a figure needed for exclusion for Japanese empire to form the totality you know, of the Japanese nationality, nationhood, sense of belonging, because she didn't belong. And also, so later on, and Hayashi Kyoko became a victim of atomic bombing in Nagasaki. So what I notice is, you know, the sense, critical sense against the Japanese empire always lied at the heart of Hayashi Kyoko's work. And she, so that's something I was trying to reveal. And it was very obvious once we look into her friendship she developed with the Japanese street prostitute that really existed. Okay, so in chapter four, um, I analyzed about a prostitute figure. So this is, um, so this chapter, uh, this is about, uh, so this chapter focused on Yanji. She's a Zainichi Korean women writer. So Zainichi Korean, she was born in Japan, grew up in Japan. Her first language is Japanese. Um, however, um, um, she was ethnically Korean. Okay. So in one of her work, important work, Koku, she focuses on a prostitute, Zainichi Korean prostitute. Um, however, she's going by Japanese. There was a moment she reveals she is Zainichi Korean because a lot of Zainichi Koreans hide the fact that they are ethnically Korean for fear of the discrimination against Koreans. So anyway, there is a Zainish Korean prostitute. And so she, she um so she works um as a hostess, but takes client as a prostitute. And at one moment, and she runs around the Tokyo at OBGYN asking for her uterus to be removed. She calls it her seijin, seijin shiki. Her own seijin shiki is a ritual um, 
a day um that means uh, coming of age ceremony it's one of the ceremonies enter into um, the adulthood in Japan. It's marked in the calendar. So it's not just uh, one day on the calendar. It's a memory-making and history-making day to become, an, uh, to become a Japanese nationals member of the Japanese nation state. So usually... Um, um, many Japanese women wears kimono and attend the ceremony. As um, some Koreans study to wear in you know, a Korean ethnic dresses too, but usually majority of them wear Japanese kimono because they enter into the Japanese nationhood. But this Zainish Korean prostitute refuses to do that boycott that ceremony, stating. My ceremony is to remove this uterus. But the many um, Japanese OBGYN doctors decline, are you okay? Why do you even do that? And they don't understand, you know, the symbolic meaning for her to remove her uterus. Because in doing so, she was trying to um, boycott the this Japanese memory-making ceremony. And also at the same time, she was trying to boycott um, reproducing the offsprings that could be as a form of resistance against the Japanese nation state. And I'm talking in a very simple way, but I analyzed very um, in a detailed manner in my chapter. And and also she was raped um, when she was living with um, Japanese stepbrothers when she was younger and she had an abortion. She was raped by both of them. So by foreclosing the possibility of reproducing the ethnically Korean offsprings, she was trying to remove herself from the circulation of the violence that Zainichi Koreans face in Japanese society and so it's a form of resistance for her and then so so this uh, Anne's experiences are narrated by her stepsister Japanese stepsister so after her tragic death the Japanese stepsister start to question her plan to attend Seijin Shiki ceremony to become, to enter the, for the memory making for the Japanese nation state. And even though she was going to receive a kimono to wear for the Seijin Shiki ceremony, she boycotted in doing so. And I was trying to say, so in a sense, by trying to, in the process of understanding the agony the pain her Korean Zainish Korean stepsister went through, this Japanese younger sister was disclosed to the pain of Zainish Koreans. And then that's where, and she becomes vulnerable towards her pains. And that's where her ethics start to emerge. Um, so I was trying to also writing about the Japanese stepsister along with this Zainich Korean older sister. Not only I was trying to, I was also trying to show the possibilities of ethics might emerge among Japanese because I believe um, in order to yeah. conceive better future, in order to combat the racism still rampant in Japanese society. Japanese cannot be self-complacent. They have to, they need a self-criticism to see, to imagine the better future in Japan. So in that sense, this um, prostitute hostess figure plays a major role to think about ethics, not only about the pain and trauma, 
a generational trauma Zainichi Koreans went through and going through even today? Thank you for wonderful question. It was not easy to answer, so I started. Thank you. I'm for so the grateful. Paper. I'm so grateful. Oh, it's yeah. also a very wonderful question. Um uh, because I was asked by many people, why do you go back and forth race or ethnicity? And how how do you differentiate it? It's a really wonderful question. So um so when the writers used the term jinshu, I translated it into race. And when the writer used the term minzoku, I used ethnicity. That was a basic rule. But there are moments I you know, it was not accurate to follow through with that rule. Um, for example, um, there was a propaganda slogan, um, um, like um, Gozoku Kyowa, that was a slogan practiced, ad, um, advocated in Manchukuo, that means five races living harmoniously. So it's always, um, it's custom to use the term race for that slogan. But the original, when we look at the Chinese character, they use the character for ethnicity. And so that was a kind of fake dream, you know, false dream, five races living harmoniously, harmoniously under the Japanese empire. Um, and, and also when I was trying to foreground the racialization processes inherent in um, race. Um, so especially when I was trying to uh, foreground the violence inherent in the racializing processes, I really intentionally used the term race. So, uh, but at the same time, Nakajimatsu used the word minzoku a lot when he was crying for the Korean race or ethnicity, he used the term minzoku, and I used ethnicity. So that's how I did. So that's why I'm going back and forth um, between race and ethnicity. But definitely, um, violence is more fore foregrounded and embedded when I use the term race. Thank you. What does your book teach us about trauma? How are trauma theory and affect theory presented in this study? Thank you so much for asking such an excellent question. Um, and it is obvious um, my book deals with trauma and generational trauma. And so the reason why I came up with this was um, I noticed how the, like the Korean massacre, you know, I talked briefly, and play a major role um, in like in the history of Zainichi Koreans living in Japan. So they talk about it a lot, and their literature talk about it a lot. And but um, I was wondering why it's not that their you know grandparents' generations went through it, but current generation, they it's not like they experienced this massacre by Japanese as being Korean, but they still talk about it with pain and agony. Why is it? And I started to think about intergenerational trauma. It is an intergenerational trauma and it's real. And and I noticed um, affect theory is extremely useful to analyze it because um, it's not like they went through the genocide but they are thrown into a certain a certain affective mood that went through the trauma directly, like how they are attuned to a certain mood. And so I was trying to um, complement by employing affect theory to understand the trauma. And of course, I learned a lot from Holocaust um, you know, studies um in order to develop this you know, trauma to study trauma and i i'm indebted to it and i try to complement with affect theories and so in that sense affect theory was very useful 
to understand why Zainish Koreans still talk about this genocide right after that took place right after the Great Kanto earthquake. What is what is your book's contribution to the study of collective memory? Yeah, so the collective memories, especially the Zainich Koreans' collective memories, it is really cutting cutting through a whole um totalizing memories, um, totalizing memories to Japanese grand narratives. Because Zainich Koreans are there, always there, but they are not, they are silenced. And so such um collective memories cut through and intervening into the ground narratives of the Japanese history. So um, that's... What does your book teach us about women's experiences during World War II in East Asia? Well, thank you so much for such a wonderful question. It's really cut into the core part of my research. So um, as you can tell, I'm not writing about good women. I'm writing about who are considered to be rather bad women. So, um, and that couldn't represent the empire's ethos, national ethos. So those women's voices and experiences, you know, they fall away from the ground narratives and historiography of Japanese history. Um, by And they, their voices are silenced. Their experiences are silenced. But these women existed and um so um by what, what i'm doing is um by foregrounding these women i was trying to fragment or challenge the already established um like seishi ground narratives or japanese historiography so through their experiences and voices and their affect and emotions they went through, um, I'm trying to challenge such big history written by starting with big letter history, by bringing in all these lowercase histories of women's voices and experiences. Um, so in doing so, I want them to reimagine the Japanese historiographies, especially the histories of the empire. So this is a very feminist reading of history and text. Um, and I was trying to, as a, so I was trying to pick up um, that were not considered to be important in thinking about Japanese history. Um, so that's, and also, um, of and and it's it's really in, um so it's so I was trying to suggest it's so limiting to see Japanese history or Japanese literature or Japanese experiences only through the national framework. But I was trying to expand into more like intra-Asian studies, and by looking at not just Japan, also looking at experiences, women's experiences, not only in Japan, but in like what was called Manchukuo or Shanghai or Korea or Pacific. So this, I hope, I, I hope <laughs> my study can contribute to, to reimagine the Japanese historiography. Thank you for the wonderful question. Can you kindly share your thoughts with us on the relationship between temporality and history and between temporality and memory? That's a really wonderful question. And thank you for asking. So, you know, as the trauma, trauma studies, you know, proved us, shown us, you know, the truth, it truth never appears in a coherent manner. Truth only appears as fragment in an incoherent manner or stuttering or silence. So we have to read such silence or stuttering or incoherency or the fragment that maybe that could be easily dismissed by, how do you say, hardcore positivist method. But I didn't want to ignore those. 
And also, you know, when the truth is revealed, the temporalities are so conflated. Uh, memories are conflated. The temporalities are conflated. So I intentionally paid attention to such um, um, fragmented temporalities and also the temporalities that doesn't go move on through um, in a linear manner. It, it could be a, like a circular movement. The temporality could be a circular movement. It could be moving from present to uh, past, the jumping onto from past to future, or jumping from the imagined future to past, skipping presence. Um, I have to encounter such um, memories and temporalities and it makes me think about what is the history? Um, who writes the history? And also the one theoretical book that was lingering in my head that I read when I was in undergrad a few decades ago when I was in Tokyo, Patrick Hutton's History as an Art of Memory. Um, so it always lingered in my head along with um, trauma theories although I didn't actively talk about it in my book. So constantly thinking about who wrote, who wrote the history, who can write the history. And so because of that, I wanted to foreground dismissed part of history. And, and also, so, you know, um, I already might have mentioned, but you know, I, I wanted to embrace artwork that makes us feel very uncomfortable because I think it's very important because um, art creates raptures in a present moment, present temporality. And from there, it allows us, it allows us to rethink the present moment along with the history behind it. And then let us reimagine better future. So, and we can learn a lot from history. And also even the each emotion has a history. Mm -hmm. So in order to understand the current feeling um, towards anything, ongoing, ongoing trauma creating event at this very moment, everybody has different reactions because everybody has different history. So um, I think it's very important to think about emotions um, and the history behind it. So the temporality plays important role, and especially the temporalities that is not linear to think about better future. Thank you for a wonderful question. It, may, it made me think again about my project itself. Thank you. Thank you so much. Who did you write this book for? Who do you consider the ideal reader? and the imagined audience. So um, who did I write this book for? What is my imagined audience? Um, I didn't think so much about it, but um, any feminist thinkers, um, it can be a feminist literary critic who wants to intervene into the already established canonical reading of history or literature, art, of film, um, anybody who questions and anybody who doesn't want to stay self-complacent, anybody who wants to keep going, um, who wants to do self-criticism for a better future, uh, not to, um, and, and also, because um, I'm trained as a comparative literature scholar. So there's a lot of tra theoretical training. So in that sense, so this um, training as a comparative literature scholar gave me a lot of tools to communicate with people across disciplines. Because um, when it comes to trauma theories, affect theories, you know, there are, you know, scholars in a different, uh, who are doing in a different theater or a different field could be a Middle East, but trying to tackle with the same issues and also the, from, especially from a feminist perspective to see the history or to see trauma, you know, 
I want them to read as well so we can communicate even crossing disciplinary boundaries. And and also um, um, when I was writing, I communicated a lot with my own student and a lot of Asians, East Asian student. And at the end of the semester, you know, after taking my class, a lot of my students said, I didn't know, um, you know, they honestly, because I'm very critical about the Japanese empire. So they opens up, they open up to me and tell me and you know, share their feelings saying, I didn't know why my parents were so angry at Japanese, the Chinese student or Korean student. Um, now I was able to understand connect what was going on I was able to understand the history behind their anger um so it was a rewarding moment to hear that from my students so um and so I want I want yeah the imagined reader will be like a who want to conduct a feminist reading and also who wants to read the Asia understand Asia in a intra in a manner of intra Asian studies, uh, not just within a, you know na narrow framework of nation state. How do you perceive women's bodies and present them in this book? How are liminal bodies and scorned bodies presented in this book? Can you describe images of? women's bodies that you intended to include in the book? Yeah, thank you for wonderful question. So um, the page 48, I have a beautiful figure. Um, it was originally Nihonga, um, draw, um, drawn by Ayana Otake, titled Prayer Inori. So actually this book was going on during the pandemic. So at first I was thinking about um, um, I was working with um, different university press, but during the pandemic, the pu publishing section, their funding was frozen. So the kind project stopped. And so before that public, for that publisher, I have to choose, come up with the painting of my own, the image of my own. And I spoke, and I really like this um, Nihonga, and I spoke with the artist Ayana Otake and she agreed with it um, because she liked my project because I'm interested in gendered women's bodies, sexualized women's bodies, like sex workers and etc. And Ayana Otake also agreed. Oh yes, that's what I'm interested in. I'm so excited about it. So this was supposed to be the front cover with this title and from a different publisher. But, you know, because of pandemic, the project stopped. Uh, so I have to go with uh, Ratulich. And but Ratulich already had their own idea about the front cover, so I couldn't use it. Uh, but they suggested to use it within the text. Uh, but this image really captures the ethos of my whole project, as I discussed with Ayana Otake. And but in the end, you know, after the you know when the vac va vaccines, you know, started to pop up and the pandemic started to be over, the publisher came back and the, the project started to move forward, but it was already too late. It was after I signed with uh, Ratulich. So it was um, inserted within the text, but it was supposed to be in the front cover. So thank you for catching up. What does this image mean? So... I wanted to foreground gendered sexualized workers, and by by through their experiences, I wanted to see the world differently, in a way we haven't heard, in a way we haven't imagined. So, um, that and this title, prostitute hostesses and actresses at the edge of the Japanese Empire, fragmenting history. So now their experiences not do not match with the um, official historiography, rather silenced and fall, fall away or ignored, scorned. Um, and so, but you know, at the same time, I came up with this, you know, 
kind of seductive title at the very end. At first, I had a very, very generic title, boring title, like gendering, racing the Japanese empire. <laughs> so, but I'm glad in the end, I came up with this like a better title that catches attention of more people. And I wish I could have employed, you know, this image that captures my, the ethos, expresses the ethos of my whole project. But thank you so much for your astute eyes by catching up this, with, with catching up this image. Since this book has been published, have any responses surprised you? How has it been received by different kinds of readers and audiences? Thank you for asking me that question. So, um, so far, so far, um, it's being accepted favorably. Uh, but the surprise reaction was because I don't see myself consider myself historian. Rather, I'm a literary critic trained in theory, um, whose first language is Japanese, and read some Chinese and Koreans. Um, however. Like many feminist historians responded to my project so positively, that was an unexpected surprise. Because I thought, um, like, uh, rigid historians may not like my project. So I didn't expect such positive response from a feminist historians who want, who's trying to tackle with the history in a different way. So in that sense, I you know I work between history and history theory and literature and art forms. So I'm constantly referring to history because I'm trying to locate my work in a historical content, historical framework, what kind of discursive formation was taking place, you know. So the positive feminist historian's response was a nice surprise. Um, but I know there will be haters as well <laughs> if I'm waiting for more responses. Our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your time has gone since completing this book? Can you tell us about your future projects? So my future project is um, I want to write about a biography, um, not only biography, and also I want to focus on certain themes as well about the Japanese feminist thinker, Morisaki Kazue. Um, she she is Japanese. She was born in Korea, colonial Korea, under Japanese Empire, and grew up in Korea. And she came back to um, Japan after the World War II, and then she lived in the country countryside um, of Japan, living with coal miners, and so she wrote a lot about coal, uh, women coal miners' lives from feminist perspectives, and then about their love, like eros, um, relationships. And, but in a way, she was creating her own theory. It's very hard to reduce her writing into certain theories, but rather she was creating theories and I wanna I want to write about her. And also growing up in colonial Korea, she wrote a lot about colonialism. And so I want to theorize what she was writing about it. And it's very critical about Japanese. Um and um, I want to write about her. I I I finished reading all her work and I'm studying. And I'm starting where where I even start because she's such a see not an easy female philosopher thinker, um, but her work really appeals to my heart. So I want to write about Morisaki Kaze as my next project to conceive better future of East Asia. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for the time and you attention that you devoted to me during the course of our dialogue. I'm so grateful. I'm so happy. And I'm so blessed. Thank you so much, Ari. I really appreciate your time and your patience. Patiently listen to my stuttering interview. Um, 
I really, I had, yeah, I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. As we end today, I am your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books of History podcast. Today, I am signing off, having been in dialogue with Nobuko Yamasaki. She is Associate Professor of Japanese and Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Lehigh University. We have been discussing her newly published book, Prostitutes, Hostesses, and Actresses at the Edge of Japanese Empire, Fragmenting History, published by Routledge 2021. Thank you. Thank you so much.